So we want to just backtrack a little bit tonight. Um, I say backtrack, but it's it's been a while since we've dealt with these um, judgments because we've been in, in Revelation chapter number 10, we've been in Revelation chapter number 11, we've looked at the two witnesses and there's been a little break in the action. But I want to take you back to Revelation chapter number 8 and verse 13, which is where we left off what was called the trumpet judgments, the series of judgments as God is pouring out his wrath upon the world. This is the end times, as we, we, we call it in modern vernacular. And if you turn to verse 13 of chapter number 8, it says this, And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels which are yet to sound. So here we're introduced to the three woes. This comes after the four trumpet judgments of chapter number 8. So you can read about them in, in chapter number 8 and you'll see the one, two, three, four judgments up, uh, tr- trumpet judgments up to verse 12. And then we get to this verse 13 where, it, you know, there's an announcement that there's worse to come. Woe, woe, woe. These are the three woe uh, judgments of the trumpet judgments and that's what we call them. It says to the inhabitants of the earth, that literally means the worldly people people, those that are attached to earthly things. Woe, woe, woe. Uh, and we looked at two of the woes So in our study. So if you turn to verse 12 of chapter 9, and that tells us that one woe is passed. Behold, there are two woes more hereafter. And if you remember, this was the kind of change in, in, these, in these judgments of what God's doing. It was a very, you know, kind of physical type of judgment with, you know, earthquakes and all this sort of stuff. But now there's a real demonic element to it. This is where the demons from the abyss are loosed and, and set upon the world. So now there's a very supernatural element to what's going on in earth. Then um, the sixth trumpet, that's the second row, that's the demons from the east. And if you remember, that was the, the huge army. Um, Revelation nine sixteen. the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000 thousands, and I heard the number of them. That was the second woe. Then we have a parenthesis section, a little a break in the action. Um, this is from verse, chapter 10, verse 1, all the way to uh, chapter 11. And verse 12 is a little gap in the program. Takes us to you know the, the scroll that's, uh, that John is, is privy to, is to, to eat. And uh, it's the prophecy of what's to come. We look at Revelation 11 and it's the two witnesses and that deals with the first three and a half year period of this seven year period of tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. Then we get to uh, where we are this evening and we're in verse uh, 14 where it says, The second woe was passed. Behold, the third woe comes quickly. And then it tells us, there in verse 15, the seventh angel sounded and there were great voices in heaven. This brings us into the seventh trumpet, which indeed itself is the third woe. So the three woes of Revelation 8, 13. The first woe is the demonic uh, uh, horde that is unleashed from the abyss, Revelation 9, 12. The second uh, uh, woe is this demonic uh, army from the east, 
And then we have this parenthesis section, chapter 10, all the way up to verse 14 here. Then we get into verse 15, and the seventh trumpet is sounded, and it's the seventh trumpet that is the third woe. Why is that the third woe? Well, we're going to unpack it and look at it this evening. So, as we do, we'll have a look through, and we'll work through it. So, first of all, we want to have a look here at the anticipation. And this is in verse number 14 and 15. So... We'll, we'll read this again. So the second woe was past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. And the seventh angel sounded, and there was great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms, and there's good textual evidence that actually this is in the singular rather than the plural, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So here we have the anticipation of what is going to be the third woe, about what's going to happen. You know, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe cometh uh, quickly. And there is an anticipation for that in just the narrative that, you know, this third woe has been announced and things are getting worse. What's it going to be? But the real anticipation here that's highlighted in these verses is not the woe that's to come, but it's about the kingdom that's going to come. And that's what it says there in verse 15, saying the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord. Because this is what we're dealing with here in this period. We call this the seven-year period, the time of Jacob's trouble. Where we are now is at the halfway point, the three-and-a-half-year point in the chronology. And really, you know, what's going on in this seven-year period? What is this tribulation period about? So let me ask you and and get you to try and think this through because we've talked about this. Is this period primarily dealing with Gentiles? No. No. Who's it dealing with? Israel. Jews. What's it dealing with them about? Relationship with Christ and their rejection of him when he came the first time. Yeah. And what did they ultimately forfeit or put on hold because they rejected the covenant? But more importantly, how did that manifest itself? No. Kingdom, kingdom, you got it. Kingdom, the kingdom, right? That's, that's what, when Jesus came the first time, what did he say? What was the message? Repent for the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom was there. It was theirs. It was theirs. The Messiah came to fulfill prophecy. He came to fulfill all that Israel had put in him as the Redeemer, the Messiah. Now we we understand that the concept of Messiah to them, and we look at it and say that they, they wanted a Messiah that would overthrow the Romans, right? They wanted a Messiah that would uh, get them out of that, that, that situation that they were in, that would usher in a kingdom where the Messiah would rule and reign. And of course, when Messiah came the first time, he came as a suffering servant, and he wasn't what they expected. But that doesn't mean that Jesus isn't or wasn't going to fulfill all those aspects of what Messiahship meant. It wasn't negated because he came the first time as a suffering servant. He was always promised to be the sovereign ruler. So they they weren't wrong in that in in a large way. Because when they look into the Old Testament prophecies, when they look into Isaiah and others, Daniel and others, they saw that Messiah would rule and reign 
over a kingdom. So the anticipation here is the kingdom because what this is all about is God starting to put into place all those promises that he gave in those covenants and to fulfill everything he said he would do and the kingdom is coming. That's the anticipation about the kingdom. And and really now we're at this point where things are really ramping up. We're heading towards this and things are hotting up and things have been bad before but they're going to get worse. If you, if you remember, I showed you this slide a, a, a way back and as we go through these judgments you get to you know, first of all you have the seven seals and they were bad but the seventh seal unleashed the trumpets and they were bad. You know, remember, we're talking millions of people losing their lives here. The world is being absolutely just tumbled about, left, right and centre. You know, this is severe, severe. But they're going to get worse. And the seventh trumpet brings us into what we call the bowl or the vile judgments. And when we get to see them, these are the worst of all. And you think, how can these things get any, any worse? Well, they're going to get worse. They're absolutely going to get worse. And, and, but this is all that God is doing to bring about his kingdom on earth. This is so contrary to what a lot of people teach today. That actually, to bring about this kingdom on earth, human beings, believers, have the responsibility of bringing the world to a place where it's fit for the king to step foot on. That's some of the teaching. It's dominion theology. That we take back the world, that we uh, sweep it up, clean it up, make it a better place, and at that point, the Lord will come back. He'll look down and say, it's ready for me now. They've prepared it. Now I can enter in and sit and take the glory. Unfortunately, Scripture doesn't say that. And when we get into these judgments, we're seeing that God in and through uh, these judgments is preparing for the kingdom to come. And it's not man preparing it, it's God uh, uh, scourging it, if you like, so that he can come back and uh, set up his kingdom. Now, the correct understanding of that, the kingdom, is so important, I think. I think it's so important in understanding end times. You know, uh, without a shadow of a doubt, if you don't understand the kingdom and the concept of it, you're not going to be able to understand what God's doing here. You're going to get all these things uh, out of whack. You know, you're not going to have the right glasses or lenses on to see where these things fit and what God's doing. It's, it's so important. Turn to Acts chapter number 1. Acts chapter number 1. We'll deal with this kind of kingdom concept. Acts chapter number 1, verses 6 and 7. Acts 1, verse 6. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It's not for you to know the times of the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. Now notice, there's no correction. It's not like, no, the kingdom's not coming. You've missed your chance. You have blew it. It's gone, it's done, it's finished. 
No, the answer is, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. Why is that important? His own power. Because I've just told you that many teach that it's not in God's power, it's in our power to usher in the kingdom. Jesus says not, it's in the Father has put in his own power. Revelation chapter number 5 is, is the beginning of that. Remember we looked at it? No man was worthy. No one in heaven, no one on earth, no one under the earth, no one anywhere was worthy to step up and open these seals. We looked at these in this, this judgment. No one was worthy. And John is bereft. Because why? If no one's worthy, there's no redemption of the earth. There's no ushering in of the kingdom. All is lost. Dominion has been lost to the devil. And it can't be reclaimed. But there is one who is worthy that stands up, right? The Lion of Judah, the Lamb that was slain, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to get this. The ushering in of the kingdom has absolutely nothing, let me repeat this, nothing, I'll say it one more time, nothing to do with man. Nothing to do with us. Again, it's just us turning things upside down, making ourselves important, and we're not. We're not. It's nothing to do with man. It's absolutely Christ. It's Christ that will usher in this. It's these events as God is judging that will lead us to the kingdom. And here we have this anticipation of the kingdom. Because yes, these judgments are being poured out. And this is the wonderful, it's not tension, but it is, it is this two-handed element that in God's judgment there's always grace. And in God's grace there's always kind of judgment. And, and the two things are, are always interlinked. That yes, there's a, 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 you know, a, a serious note to this. That yes, this is, this is humanity being absolutely pillared by God. They're, they're facing the wrath of God. All these judgments are coming from the throne of heaven upon the earth. And it is drastic. But yet on the undercurrent of that, there is God's grace that the kingdom is coming. That he is going to fulfill what he said he would do. So you almost have to bring these two tensions into place. And in Revelation 5, you know, you've got the lion. That's what John, it says about John. It says, John heard a lion but he saw a lamb. And where's the tension in that? There's tension because, number one, there's the sovereign king, the lion. But when he looks, he sees a lamb that was slain, literally mutilated. That's what it says in the Greek. What's the tension there? That yes, this is the king that's come to set up the kingdom. Yes, Christ is the sovereign, the ruler, the reigner that will come and will rule with a, a rod of iron. But at the same time, he's also the one that bears back to the whip. He's also the one that let uh, his own creation spit upon him and beat him. Judgment and grace. That's who God is. It's beautiful. There's this anticipation of the kingdom and more importantly, because there's going to be a kingdom, that means there has to be a king and that's the great anticipation. The king is coming. He's the king of Psalm 2. He's the king of Psalm 24. He's the ruler described by Isaiah. Let's look there. And these are verses we use all the time, but we have to remember this is not Christmas card verses. Isaiah 9 verse 6. 
We love to rain it out at Christmas, but, you know, really and truly, this is an announcement. The sovereign king came and will come again. Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He's the one that will rule the kingdom. If the government's going to be upon his shoulder, that means he's going to rule and he's going to reign. He's not doing this from heaven. He's doing this from earth. That's why the government will be upon his shoulder. Daniel chapter 2, turn there. Daniel 2 verse 44. Again, this is, this is prophetical truth in the word of God. Daniel 2 44. In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. The kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand for Ever. That's an everlasting kingdom. It's going to be upon where? The earth. The earth. Daniel chapter 4 verse 3. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. And I saw in the night visions and behold one like the son of man came with the clouds of heaven came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Look at the language. All people, nations, langu- languages. This is earthly talk. It's an earthly kingdom. That the promised one in Isaiah 9, that the promised one in Genesis chapter number 3, the Redeemer, the Messiah, will be the ruler and the one who reigns over it. Luke chapter number 1, finally, verse 32. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. This is Christ's kingdom on earth as promised in the Old Testament to the people of Israel and by extension to the world that there will be one that will rule and reign righteously from Jerusalem. On the throne of David. That's the Davidic covenant. And when this king comes, there will be a solution to the world's problems. Now, there is no solution. The best man can do is throw petrol in the fire. Honestly. The, the effort, the things they'll come up with will make society worse. You're going to see this as we go on in generation to generation that they're going to try and, and enforce this type of uh, government that they want the world to be in. And it's just going to end up in rack and ruin. And what we're going to see is, is, is society split and pushed away. And you see this now. You know, if you, if you, if you can't see this, you're, you're, you've lost your mind. That the middle class is, is, is so-called is going. 
that there, there are only going to be two classes of people. The poor and the rich. And the rich are going to try and live in their own little society and push the poor out because they are the problem. No, sin's the problem. And man's solution is going to be horrific. And you'll see this and you've seen it and you will continue to see it. Man does not have a clue what they're doing. Not a clue. All these great ideas of trying to build utopias. Problem is, sin. Sin. Where you have human beings, you're going to have sin. It's going to break. Remember hearing um, John Burko? Do you remember him? The House of Commons speaker. Um, and this was, this was just after the, the massacre in New Zealand. Do you remember in the mosques? This was a few years ago now. But they had a little minute uh, silence for it. And John Burko got up and he said, um, he said this, This barbarity, this evil, this depravity will not prevail. We will stand up to it and it will be defeated. What's he saying? We're going to fix the problem of evil in the world. How's that going, John? <laughs> this is three years ago. Not going well, is it? Absolutely not. But this kingdom, when it comes, is going to be a righteous one. But it won't come. This is the anticipation in Revelation. But the fulfillment, turn to Revelation 19, verse 11 to 16. This is when this kingdom comes. This is when the king comes. And this is Jesus. Revelation 19, verse 11. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. Isn't that beautiful? Just thinking about our little, little hymn, Faithful One. Called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he does judge and make war. His eyes were a flame of fire, his head were many crowns, and he had a name written which no man knew, but he knew himself. And he was clothed with vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he tread the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he had written on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the kingdom coming. This is Christ coming to rule and to reign. But in Revelation chapter number 11, at this midpoint, we're three and a half years away from Revelation 19 at this point. And the anticipation is in the air. God is moving and the kingdom is coming. So we'll move on quickly from the anticipation of the kingdom to the acclaim of the king. It's Revelation 11, verse 16 and 17. And the four and twenty elders, I believe, represent the church, which sat, upon, sat before God on their seats or thrones, fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee great power and hast reigned. So no sooner is this kingdom announcement being made in verse 15 that the response is one of praise it's one of praise and thanksgiving because the sovereign ruler has taken up his right to the earth and whether you like it or not whether you want to believe it or not we know that God's sovereign absolutely but in his sovereignty he has allowed Satan 
to be the ruler of this world now. That's why we're in enemy territory. I, th- I think we missed that concept. God is sovereign, absolutely, but in his sovereignty, he has allowed these things to happen. He sits over them, but the dominion of this world belongs to another, to the prince of this world. Look at uh, Matthew 4, and let's turn there quickly. Matthew 4, verses 8 and 9. See, Adam was given that dominion. Adam lost that dominion. It was wrestled away from him by the deceiver. Then in Matthew chapter number 4, this is a temptation of Christ. Verse 8 and 9 says, Again the devil taketh him up to exceeding high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and the glory of them, and said unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. And Jesus responds with the word of God, but he doesn't correct that statement and say those kingdoms are not yours to give. Because at that point, and this point now, those kingdoms are Satan's to give. He has dominion. He has rule. That's why he's called the prince of this world. John chapter 12, turn there, verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. John 14, verse 30. Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and have nothing on me. John chapter 16, verse 11. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. So, for now, this is Satan's kingdom. This is Satan's dominion. He is the one that is the prince of this world. And this is why the ushering of the kingdom is so important because it's more than just uh, God dealing with Israel and setting up his throne as he promised. It is about taking back that which was lost by the first Adam. That's why Christ is referred to as the last Adam. These concepts are important. So part of this kingdom is about the redemption of the world. It is about taking back that which was lost. (coughs) So... It's so important that we remember that here and now, the world, no matter how friendly it may seem, no matter how it may cozy up to the church and to the believer, this world is in the control and throes of the enemy. That's it. It's a battlefield. This is a little little recuperation place where we get recharged to go into the battle. But for some Christians today, and maybe a lot of Christians, unfortunately, that the battle isn't about going out there. The battle is about getting themselves to here. And then, oh, we've made it to church. That's okay. We're no, you go into that world. It's a battlefield. It's enemy territory. And, and the devil walks to and fro, doesn't he? Like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That's a battlefield out there. The good news is that the kingdom of the devil, the world as we see it, it isn't an eternal kingdom. It's not an everlasting kingdom. It's not a forever kingdom. It's a kingdom that is going to come to ruin. Why? Because the King of kings and the Lord of lords is coming in his righteous, holy authority and he will take back that which was lost to the enemy. And in that day, beloved, we're no longer in a battlefield. We're in our kingdom. 
with the king. But now, now is a different story. So you can see why heaven bursts into praise there in verse 16 and 17. That it's not just, yes, the kingdom is coming, but it's what it means for the entirety of creation. What it means for that which was lost by Adam is going to be redeemed by the last Adam and heaven bursts out in praise. And as a result of this announcement of the kingdom, we have the anger. And the anger is of creation. It's the anger of the created. Look at verse 18. And the nations were angry. And thy wrath has come in the time of the dead that they should be judged and they should give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. Here's another little tension that you'll always find. Rejoicing in heaven causes conflict on earth. Rejoicing in heaven causes anger on earth. Why? Because God is moving. A man doesn't want to be judged, doesn't want to be found in a sin, doesn't want to stand before God, wants to deny the fact that the king is coming, wants to deny the fact that the kingdom is coming, wants to deny their creator. But here at this announcement, we have this polar opposite effect that heaven is rejoicing, but on earth they're shaking their fists. Why? Heaven is Christ-centered, word-centered, earth Unfortunately, it's man-centered. It's all about us. And nothing angers men more than the removal of the fruit of their labors, their wealth and their possessions. But Christ is coming to take that which is his. 1 Corinthians 10, 26, you don't need to turn there, says, For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He is coming back to take it. And the response here is one of anger. Anger at the judgment. Anger at the justice that's going to be uh, meted out. But when Christ returns, all will receive that which they are due. So we've had the anticipation of the king, or the kingdom, sorry. We've had the acclaim of the king. We've had the anger of creation or the created. And then finally, we want to quickly look at the ark of the Covenant, verse 19, says this. This is just a little throw-in verse, but there's so much in here. Revelation 11, verse 19. And the temple of God was opened in heaven. And there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and earthquake and great hail. Now, Revelation is the book of revealing. It's the book of unveiling. That's what Revelation means or men. Remember it's a Greek apocalypto. We always think about apocalypse, but it's really a revealing, it's an unveiling. And 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 in Revelation we have these uh, great revealings or openings that we see. Revelation four, there's a door opened. Revelation six, the seals are opened. Revelation nine, the abyss is opened. Revelation eleven, nineteen, where we are here, the temple of God is opened. Revelation fifteen, the tabernacle of testimony is opened. Revelation nineteen, eleven, heaven is opened. Revelation twenty, towards the end of the book, the books of judgment are opened. But here, this opening is an opening in heaven, and in heaven is seen the temple. The Ark of His Testament. Now, what's going on here? Well, there is a heavenly temple. There's a heavenly temple which the first earthly temple was modeled after. Turn to Exodus 25. Exodus 25, verse 8. 
Exodus 25, verse 8. The word of God says this, And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them, according to all that I show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle, and the pattern of all the instruments, even so shall you make it. So here we have Moses getting the instructions about the sanctuary that's going to be the tabernacle, and, he, and he's given the pattern of it. And the pattern of it is a heavenly one. Turn to Hebrews chapter number 9, verse 23. In reference to the, the tabernacle, here we have Hebrews nine twenty three. It says, "It was therefore necessary that the pattern of the things or of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these." So God, when He prescribed the tabernacle, so you're in the book of you know Exodus, the people have come out of Egypt, and they haven't had any type of formalized worship. They don't know how to worship Jehovah. They've been in the, uh, uh, Egypt. They've been in and seen the Egyptians all around them. And they have ways of worshiping their false gods. And they're delivered out of this. And, and you get into the book of Leviticus. And, and the Lord lays down all these kind of instructions on how they're to worship him in the correct way. And the tabernacle is the centerpiece of this. You have the tabernacle as the centerpiece of the way of worship to God, and, and they're surrounding that and supporting that is the entirety of the Levitical system in the sacrifices and all the laws that go with it. But the important bit is the tabernacle itself. And the tabernacle is modeled from the heavenlies. That's what the writer of Hebrews, I was going to say Paul there, but the writer of Hebrews uh, states, and he's contrasting, but he's also pointing to this uh, tabernacle in the heavens where the, the pattern was given. So what's going on? Why does God then give a pattern for the tabernacle as this place of worship? Because it's a, it's a copy of worship in heaven. And he is telling his people, this is how you are to worship me. And when you look at the tabernacle, you, you see it's a wonderful study where you see that it's just a huge type of Christ. It, it's, it's, it's unbelievable, the stuff in there. But it's about how to approach God. How to enter into God's presence. And they had to come through the gate. That was the, the very entryway. You know, the tabernacle only had one way in and one way out. And you had to come in through the gate or the door, whatever way you want to call it. And we know that Jesus referred to himself as what? The door. And then you come in and the first thing you're presented with is the altar of sacrifice, the brazen altar. And that's where the animals were sacrificed. That's where the, uh, you know, the, the blood was taken to be applied in other parts of the the uh, tabernacle system. But the reality is that you could go no further, the, the priest could go no further until sacrifice took place. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. And then the next bit of furniture in the tabernacle pros, uh, progress was the, uh, um, the lever. This great basin filled with water. And there the priests would come and they would wash their hands and they would wash their feet, which had been dirtied by the process of killing the animals, and they would get themselves clean. 
so that they could then go to the next part of the tabernacle, which was the holy place. They went in through the curtain and they went into the holy place. But to get to the holy place, you had to go the way of sacrifice. Then you had to go to the way of cleansing. That's sanctification. Then you went into the holy place. And inside the holy place, you had those three bits of furniture. Who can remember? (laughs) You had the table of showbread on the right hand side. The lampstand on the left. Table of showbread. Bread. What did Christ say was? Bread of life. On the left, you had the golden lampstand. What did Christ say? I am the light of the world. Then you had one more piece of furniture that, that sat before the great curtain that was torn in two on, on, on Christ's uh, uh, Passion Week. And that was the place where the Holy of Holies, this little small uh, uh, square, just a little tiny thing. What was it? Do you remember? It was the altar of incense, the golden altar where prayer went up before the Lord. Then you went in, curtain opened if you were the high priest, and you went in and you were faced with the Ark of the Covenant and upon the Ark sitting over the mercy seat at that time was the presence of God, the Shekinah of glory. And Jesus says, John 14, 6, mark this down. There's no difference in the way to God then and the way to God now. Jesus said, John 14, 6, what did he say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man but by me. That's the, the way of worship. That's how you get to God. And that's what the tabernacle was. The pattern from the heavenlies. Christ, Christ, I am the way. Through the gate, the way of sacrifice. I am the truth. What does Jesus say in his word? Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. He is the sanctification agent, the word. That's the laver. Then he says, I am the life. So when you go into the Holy of Holies, you've dealt with the penalty of sin. You've dealt with the practice of sin. Now you're going into fellowship with God and you have those elements that give you life, bread and light and your fellowship and with God. And then what did Jesus say? No man cometh unto the Father, the holy of holy place, the Shekinah glory. That's the tabernacle system. I'm the way, the truth and the life. That's the pattern from the heavenly. That's what we have today. It's no different. It is Christ, Christ, Christ. And the scene in heaven is just a picture of the worship that God decreed on earth. Speaks of his word, speaks of his works. And of course, when we see the ark of his testament, when we see the temple in heaven, we can't help but think of Israel and what was given to them all those years ago. So, we've seen the anticipation of the kingdom. We've seen the acclaim of the king. There's the anger of creation and then there's the ark of the covenant. And then, we're going to leave it. 